Independent, totally biased, Hull Kingston Rovers. You are listening to the Red Robin Podcast with Joe Appleyard and Chris Johnson. Welcome to the latest Heritage cast of the Red Robin Podcast. Today, myself, Joe Appleyard and co-host are joined by James Green, who played 82 times for the Robins during his red and white career. We're also going to be live streaming on YouTube, but don't worry for you guys who are missing the live stream. It will be updated, of course, on our normal platforms tomorrow morning. So thank you for listening as always. This is the Red Robin Podcast. Right. Perfect. We are live. So welcome to this exciting edition of the Red Robin podcast, the first one that's actually getting live streamed. Obviously, for you guys who are listening in a few days on our normal platforms, you won't have a clue what we're on about, but you should do, because we announced the other day that our YouTube page is now up and running. Chris, before we speak to James Green, who's our guest today, how vital do you think the YouTube page is going forward in 2022? We just want to add a bit more variety, don't we, in doing these live streams. We're also obviously going to be uploading the podcast on all our other platforms. Nothing's changed there. But this just gives us a little bit extra output and content, including match day blogs, videos of former games, videos of us being at the game. I'm really looking forward to seeing where this goes, mate. Is he there? I don't know, guys. This is the beauty of Chris's Wi-Fi and him starting up. Um, God knows what's happening. But... Wait for us to, you know, probably do what we're already there doing we and just speak to, to people, but also give... Uh, our... Chris, your Wi-Fi is rubbish. You're spoiling it for all our viewers on YouTube. <laughs> what both of them yes both of them <laughs> i am going to start because chris's wi-fi is rubbish so james green you join us on the first ever live stream of the red robin podcast first guest on our youtube page how are you doing mate first and foremost before we obviously speak about your career in rugby league how have you been because a lot of rovers fans will obviously have followed your journey post Hull kingston rovers but now that you've recently retired how's it how's life treating you yeah, it's good, mate. It's um, a bit weird getting used to having all this spare time on my hands and waking up on a Monday morning feel like I'm feeling like I've not been hit by a bus. So it's uh, yeah, it's taking some getting used to, but um, yeah, enjoying the transition and making the most of the time that I've got. I think what most players don't realise when they retire, I mean, for you who's obviously gone to the championship, is how different it actually is. Like I said, you're waking up on a Monday morning, you're in full-time work now, but how is that? I bet you're not missing now that we're heading into November, it's getting colder, winter is coming, as they said on the um, Game of Thrones. You don't have to do pre-season, that's a bit of a bonus of retiring. Yeah, that's that was probably one of the biggest deciding factors, to be honest. Um, it's... 
I really underestimated how hard part-time would be. Um, you don't realise how much of a, a luxury it is being a full-time athlete when you finish at one, two, maybe three o'clock in the afternoon and the rest of the day is yours. Um, am I on my own yet? No, carry on, mate. I can still hear you. It's the afternoon you was in. Oh, I, was, I can just see myself. I was talking to myself then. I think what yeah. I do, James, is when you're the only one who's speaking, it obviously my mic and Chris's mic's just died completely. So it zooms into your face. That's, I think, how it works. Oh, sweet. Happy days. Um, but yeah, it's, you don't realise how, how much of a luxury it is being a, a full-time athlete when you finish early afternoon and the rest of the day is yours and you can do what you want. Um, to then going into full-time work, finish at five, training at six, not getting home till 10 o'clock at night and then doing it all again tomorrow. Um, so I really underestimated that side of it and how hard that would be. Um, and probably underestimated how hard the championship is as well. Um, you can't really half-ass it and get away with it. You've, you've got to be you've got to be playing well and you've got to be looking after yourself, which the back end of my playing career, because of how busy I was at work, I, I wasn't doing them things and started to get found out a bit. Do you think with... The Championship and League One, obviously, we're going to speak about the expansion and stuff later on in the show. Cornwall, obviously, now announcing they're going to have a rugby team. But do you think the Championship and League One's underestimated because you get a lot of tough blokes and, I know, people like yourself and other people who have played in Super League and then the Championship and League One. And maybe the skill's not as high, but definitely the physicality. And I think a lot of people, especially the outsiders, think if you play in Championship and League One, you're kind of coming to the end of the career or you're not really classed as professional athletes. But I think it's totally the opposite, mate. Yeah, it, 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 I, I'd say they're, they're different in, in, in how, how they're harder. Super League's a hell of a lot quicker. Um, any mistake gets punished right away. Um, so you've got to be like on top of your game there. But championship-wise, because it's a little bit slower, it's a lot more physical, especially when you're trying to carry the ball and everybody's set waiting for you. Um, and you look at some of the lads that are in the championship, like we all, we all lift weights at rugby. That's all part of it. But... Yeah. A lot, a lot of them are carrying a little bit more timber, so you're working with some bigger blokes there as well. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a lot more physical, um, but it's a lot more competitive now with dual reg, and especially last year when you could learn somebody for two weeks from the Super League and, and stuff like that. It was it was a lot harder last year. Greeny, do, do you think you'll benefited from the fact having them two-week loans, especially Mikey Lewis? Yeah, massively. I think like, Mikey was class for us when, when he came, um, creating something out of nothing, like a real live wire for us. And it, it gave us like a real surge of energy when we probably needed it the most, when we were, we were struggling a little bit. So he was he was a breath of fresh air. He was great. Um, we had people like Jamie Ellis, like Super League class. Um, well, then we, had some, we had some young lads as well on the, on the fringes of their respective teams who, who came and were full of enthusiasm and energy. So they, they really helped as well. Um, especially with the injury crisis we had, it, it made yeah. quite a difference for us. I think with the dual reg situation and stuff, I think COVID definitely played its part. But how vital do you think, because especially now that res the reserves are coming back as well, but you had kids like Mikey Lewis who maybe wasn't fitting in at first in Rovers' 2021 season. I remember the game against Catalans, the early games that Tony Smith's men played. He really struggled in defence. He came to you guys. He really benefited from the system. And these young lads, they're not just playing against people their own age, but they're playing against grown men like yourself and then blokes like you mentioned, these weightlifters, these kids who work on building sites and then go and knock 10 bells of shit out of each other. Do you know what I mean? I feel like for the young lads, especially Rovers in 2022, you've got 
Adam, um, Tom Ware, a young prop forward, we've signed three prop forwards from the academy lads. I think the forwards definitely benefit from going on loan rather than staying and playing five or six games for the academy and a few for the reserves. I think that's really beneficial for their career. And I know you did that, didn't you, coming up? We'll speak about that soon, but I know you did that for Workington, Newcastle, who was affiliated with the time. But I think it's a vital part of their development. Yeah, I think especially for somebody playing in the middle of the field, like your forwards and stuff, like... Um, when when you get to like the, the top end of academy and reserves, like you could be the biggest kid on the field, so you're just running through people. It's not until you you start playing against men that yes, it toughens you up, but you have to start learning other skills where you're getting yourself out of trouble because you're not going to be able to run over a thirty year old bloke who's been playing the game for ten years, like he's got a bit about him. Um, so you start picking things up on the fly of how to win a tackle how to get avoid somebody and, and, and things like that. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's massive for kids' development. Um, no disrespect to the reserve grade, but it's a massive step up going from there to the championship and an even bigger one from championship to Super League. So I think it helps bridge that gap for them as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think the benefit of having this YouTube page, Chris, and live streaming is the fact that people can comment. We've got our first comment from Rich Major saying, what's my thoughts on Jamie Ellis? James, you might not have seen, but me, me and your ex-teammate had a bit of a um, kerfuffle last year when Rovers wasn't doing too well. So it's an ongoing joke within the podcast. So if you're confused, that's what it means. But because we're on yeah. the show, he's a great guy and I wish him all the best at York in 2022. But we will move on, James. Growing up in the local area, mate, <laughs> What was your first experience, Chris laughing as well, what was your experience firstly getting into rugby league? Who was you supporting? Whereabouts was you playing? And how did you make that transition from amateur growing up as a teenager before you started at Rovers Academy? Uh, so I, I grew up and still live in, in Westall now. Um, so my mum and dad were, were diehard FC fans. Um, I had no choice in the matter <laughs> as a kid. <laughs> Uh, I think at, at three months old, I was at my first Rovers game at Boulevard. So um, I had a season ticket there till I was 16, signed at Rovers at 16 and kind of wasn't really bothered about FC after then. Um, but yeah, I, I grew up playing for Westall from the age of eight to 13. Um, it was pretty easy for me. I mean, everyone in my family loved rugby. And then I think we went to like a family party or something and there was somebody there and I was playing rugby, took rugby with the kids in the back garden and I was about four times the size of the rest of them. Um, and one of the dads said, oh, we need someone like him down at our team. And then, yeah, when you're four foot bigger than everybody else at the age of eight, it's quite quite an easy sport to get into. So, um, yeah, played played ever since I was eight. Um, left West Hull at 13 to go to Scala for a few years and then got picked up by Rovers at, at 16. Well, James, uh, was you, like, people say about size, don't they, and, like, being a big kid, and especially when you're younger, but did you sort of, was you an aggressive kid when you was younger, or was you just had the size? Because I, I remember when I played rugby, you had some of the, you know, some of the big kids played rugby, but they didn't have the aggression, and, and but you had little kids who, who, who would fight anyone. Yeah. No, I was... I was always like really soft and laid back. I think my my aggression is something I had to pretty much learn. Um, it, it even even came to a point when I was at Rovers in the academy, like they were saying, look, you need to use your size more. You need to become more aggressive. You've got all the physical attributes to to do what you want we want you to do. You just need to get a bit more angry. Um, so it's definitely something I had to learn because 
when you're a kid and you're that big and you, you play fighting with all your mates and stuff, you are conscious of how much bigger you are than them and you don't want to hurt them. Um, so you've almost got that thing in the back of your mind where, oh, I need to go steady because I could really hurt somebody here. But then when you come to rugby, like that's a good thing. Like We want you to hurt people. We want you to skill people. So I had to learn it over the years. But um, I, no, I was like the softest kid ever growing up. <laughs> So when you obviously signed for the academy, are you the same age as like Nick? Was it Nick Johnson, Chris Hill? Was it you're that age, aren't you? Uh, Nick Johnson's my age. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was a bit younger than me. Um, I got swept up when so Rovers got promoted to Super League, and if they stayed up, that was when the licensing came out. Um, yeah. So at the time, Rovers only had a reserve grade; they didn't have an academy. Um, so because they got because they stayed up, they had to go out and build an academy pretty much in a single off season. Um, so that off season, they went out and signed like twenty of us in one go, which is like unheard of. Like normally now, you might sign five or six every off season to go with the ones you've already got. So I was quite fortunate, really, if it weren't for that massive intake of twenty players, I, I probably wouldn't have been picked up, to be honest. How did you find your first season at Academy? Because obviously you mentioned there that you was going through that transition of Rovers actually making an Academy. My transition was when they were scrapping the Academy and making the City of Hull. So I had quite a negative experience, especially under-19s. But for you guys, the, the inaugural Hull KR Academy in Super League, was there any expectations? What was the coaching like? Was you actually at the ground? How was that all working? Because I know you, you're obviously a few years older than me, so I know it changed so much by the time I started when you was breaking through. Yeah, it, it was really difficult. I mean, like, we we were picking things up as we went along. So we had a coach, Billy Mallinson was our conditioner from the first yeah. team. Um, that was pretty much all we had. It was, we just got banded together overnight. Nobody really knew anybody. There was there was a few that knew each other because we played amateur together. But then um, in pretty much one pre-season, we had to like hit the ground running. So I think that first year, we won two games all year. And that was London Broncos home and away. That was it. Um, we got battered by everybody. We used to play Bradford away and they'd put 80 on us. Wigan had put 80 on us. It was so, so difficult. Um, but yeah, it was it was a good experience. I mean, having Billy Mallinson when you're 16 years old will make you grow up very quick. Um, I don't know how many people know Billy on a, on a personal level, but he's like the drill sergeant from... Um, Full Metal Jacket, like he's very intense. Like he, yeah, he he was big for me, but um, still really enjoyed the process. Like it was a big step up from amateur, but there was no real expectation on us because we'd just been thrown together. Yeah, I remember um, Billy's drills when we was at Hammers when it was chucking down, but he had no let up even for the new kids, the 15, 16 year olds. But like you said, it makes you the person you are, don't it? I think he was um, he was a huge loss when he left Rovers. I think people forget that. Um, him and Paul yeah. Patton as well, who was actually at the Black and Whites now. But your playoff, what was it when you got to the playoffs? You're, you was part of that team, weren't you? The first ever academy team to make the playoffs. What year was that? Uh, that would have been... Might have been my last year in the academy, so it might have yeah. been the following year or the year after. Um, so we had we'd kept quite a lot of that first intake, so we had like a fairly old 18s team. Um, yeah. but yeah, we'd I think we'd, we'd just snuck in, I think we got the very last spot. Um, I can't remember who we played to be honest, I think we got knocked out the first round, but 
um, yeah, still still a great achievement, um, considering we'd only been going a couple of years. When you look across at, at FC, who'd had an academy for God knows how long, um, it was it was massive. Yeah, definitely, mate. And obviously, you mentioned it was your last year in the academy. Then you moved up. You broke into the first team. But before that, like we've mentioned, you played a few games. You went on loan with a few people, didn't you? To Workington, you went to Newcastle. Was it Batley as well? Yeah, Christ, I've been everywhere. Um, you have. You're, um, more clubs than Targa Woods. But yeah. I would, again, a, um, a person's made a comment about, well, have you got any advice for any young forwards coming up in the game? When you was obviously playing in the Championship and League One with them three dual reg teams that we've previously mentioned, how did you find that step up on a personal note? I know we've spoke about the likes of Mikey Lewis and stuff, but for you, especially being a bit of a target, a big lad in the middle, these, these older blokes, these, you know, these muscle guys or we've spoke about the kids who just want to go out and smash people I bet you was definitely an easy target mate but it probably made you the prop you are for when you made that step up didn't it yeah because I think as well coming from a Super League team everybody wants to bash the kid from Super League as well so um, it's almost like who do you think you are so you've got a target on your head from day one anyway and then it doesn't help when you're six foot seven as well and everyone wants a bit so um yeah it, it definitely helped my development especially being been a front rower as well like it takes a while to grow into your body um i was when i thought i was younger i was the fat kid the tall fat kid and then <laughs> when you hit puberty and it all seems to fall off yeah i was like the tall skinny kid so i've never actually been in a gym until i signed at rovers at 16 so weightlifting was completely new to me um what i had was just like just just natural natural strength which weren't a lot so for me to then start packing on muscle and lifting weights and stuff and growing into my body was a big thing. So to go out on dual reg at 21, um, all over the country, I mean, I spent a month on, at work and Greg Sandercock said, look, do the month. If you don't like it, you don't have to stay. So as soon as 28 days was up, I was straight in his office, like, I right, going back there. Um, and then the next best option, I think it was badly after that, John Keir rang and asked Billy Mallinson, like, we need a front rower, can you recommend anybody? And he, he put me forward. Um, and then loved it, loved it at Batley. We had a real good team at the semi-final of the playoffs and stuff. Following year, we got a, a link with Newcastle Thunder, so even more travelling. Um, and then back end of that year, that was the year that I'd, I'd managed to string some games together in the first team and then didn't really look back after that. I want, I want, a lot of fans probably don't realise what it means, though, going to go out on loan. So was you training with the first team and then going and just playing match days, or would you go spend time with, or was you fully with a team you was on loan? What 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 was the setup for you like? It was a it was a bit of a mix really, because especially when when you're young, like that, your you, your own team wants to keep an eye on you, um, and they want to get as much training to you as possible that they can monitor. So. I'd play for the dual reg team on a Sunday. I'd do recovery with everybody else on the Monday. The following Tuesday, the, the day after, I'd go through my video with Sandy, like literally every single clip. Like he would sit me down and he'd be rewinding it and whatnot. I'd only played 40 minutes, but it used to take three hours to go through the video with him. It was an absolute nightmare. Um, and that was every game. Wednesday, Thursday, I'd train with the first team as normal. But then Thursday night, Friday night, I'd be dual reg training, play Sunday and do it all again the next week. Yeah, it's a lot of commitment, isn't it, mate? And I think especially a few years ago before the, the loan system and the dual reg finally hit the ground running, it was quite, you'd find out on the Monday if he was playing for Arbor Rovers or he was playing for Batley, it was kind of like a bit ad lib. But 
eventually you did finally get that call up. You made your debut against Bradford the 10th of August 2012. You had a pretty hectic debut. Injured, <laughs> placed on report, suspended. Tell us about your um, your first hit out in it. Was it was it that shirt behind you? Yeah, that was the one. Yeah, that's this was is it, what, the one that I, re I remember it being at home, wasn't it though? Or was it Oddsall? No, it was Oddsall. It was, was Oddsall. Odd Odd yeah. So no, tell us well, about yeah. your debut then. <laughs> <laughs> so like, as I got older and I was like playing with like younger kids that were making the debut, I was like, tell you what, like you won't top my debut. I don't know what you're so nervous about. As long as you don't get knocked out and suspended, you've done all right. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so. Came on 10 minutes before half time, um, clashed heads with Chev Walker about two minutes in, sparked out on the floor. This was like before the new concussion protocol had come in. Um, so the physio came on and he was like, How are you feeling? I was like, oh, I feel all right. And he's like, Well, you don't look all right. And I was like, Well, can you just keep an eye on me? He was like, Well, because it's your debut, I don't want to take you off after two minutes. We'll, we'll just keep an eye on you. Um, so I played until half time. And then at the time, like Craig Sandercock had this thing about me, like like getting me um, forearms up into contact and like raising my knee a little bit to stop people like tackling my legs. But every time we're, we're doing the drill, it was like, get your knee higher, get your knee higher, knee higher. I was like, Jesus Christ. So when it came to this game, I think I got like a, a, a kickoff carry and I brought it so high. I think I hit Tom Alderson straight in the chest. That's how I had done it. Um, and he went off for like broken ribs and he got put on reports. Uh, um, whether or not I'd have played the following week, if it weren't for that suspension, we'll never know. Um, but yeah, I'd got, so yeah, I got knocked out, suspended for a game. I got a 500 quid match bonus, but 300 quid got taken of it from the RFL for my, for my <laughs> fine. So yeah, didn't, didn't even see that either. <laughs> Obviously, uh, Sam Cock was quite involved, wasn't he? Like you said, he's already, you know, he's sitting you down and watching you through videos. What was the plan for you for that season? What, like, was it to to blood your way in, or did he see you was playing more games than what you did? What What was the plan? So it was it was really cautious with me, to be honest. Um, so I think before pre-season had even finished, I'd signed a, a two-year extension. Um, so I'd only got I'd only a one-year contract into the first team to prove myself. And before, before pre-season had finished, he'd extended it by a further two years because he saw something in me and it caught, it kind of tied in with his contract as well. So he had like me and Liam Salter, we both re-signed at the same time. And we were like his little like pet projects. So end of every session, he was taking me to one side, doing more and more drills. And he would always go through my video with me, like with a fine tooth comb and when you're 21 and it's like it's all new to you, you're thinking like, "Christ, this bloke's intense." Like, is this what it's always like? Like, I'm not sure if this is this is for me. Because um, where his office used to be, we had to walk past it to go to the gym every day. So he'd walk past on a Monday or Tuesday, and you'd hear the door creak, and you'd be like, "Don't be me, don't be me, don't be me." And then you'd hear your name. It's like shit. So you have to walk back. It's like his college because he wants to watch video, or he spotted one thing that you'd done wrong, and he'd be like telling you about it. And, it used to get to the point where it's like, mate, if I'm that bad, why why am I still here and why are you picking me? Like, I must be doing something right. But like, he used to get onto you for absolutely everything. Um, and, I'm, and I'm glad he did because it wasn't until yeah. he left and I was playing regularly or the back end of his year and I was playing regularly and I was playing well that you kind of appreciate it. But at the time, I hated it. Chris, I think what, 
interesting to take out of that was when we actually did our first Heritage cast, James, with Michael Dobson, he said that he enjoyed working with Sander Corkham and Travis, who we're going to speak a little bit about later on. But he struggled with the English kids. What was your perspective of that? Because you was coming up with the likes of, there was you, there was Salt, Scott Taylor, Liam Watts, all these kids in Hull, the likes of Scotty Morell, Ben Kane, who'd just been um, released by the club for his the first time. How did you think Sander Cock was a, as as a manager? Because I know with the fans, it was always going to be tough for him replacing Justin Morgan. And I know it didn't work out all Kingston Rovers, probably on the pitch for Craig Sander Cock. But what was your experience as him as your first, like professional manager? Because I know Dobson said he thought, from the Australians, thought he was great. But they understood that he kind of had his favourites and wasn't really that interested. Whereas for you, obviously, it seems that he was. Yeah, it was, obviously it was it was all all new to me, so I had I had nothing to compare it to. Um, I'd gone from I had some good coaches at reserve grade, um, but then going into a full time environment where literally in pre season every hour is accounted for from the minute you walk through the door to the minute that it's time to go home. Um, so I just thought that was normal, um, and yeah, he's he i think he'd seen something in a few people and he put a lot of time and effort into him and i think it was almost like we were his, his project but it was because of how intense he was i think you either loved him or you didn't um so i think he rubbed a few people up the wrong way because of how demanding he was in terms of detail and i remember he used to measure things out like you'd be doing a drill and he'd like he'd stop the drill and then he'd stand next to you and he'd like measure it out with his feet and it's like you're half a foot too wide and he'd grab you and he'd move you you know he's thinking like it's it's six inches like what difference does that make but it'd stop everybody to make a point and do it um and i think if some people were a bit quiet and he knew that he could have a go at you and you'd take it on the chin and keep going you almost made a bit of a target for yourself because it'd, it'd make a point out of you for everybody knowing full well that you'd take it but then behind closed doors it'd be like you're doing this well you're doing that well so, uh, depending on what your character was, you either loved him or you hated him. Yeah. And obviously, like I mentioned, Craig Sandercock was your first coach as a professional rugby league player. When he got sacked, and there was obviously then we found out that Chesley was going to take over. And before we speak about your breakout season, probably 2014, Young Player of the Year, all things like that, James... What was the initial reaction in the camp? Because I know Rovers were struggling. Was it 2013 Sandercock got sacked, wasn't it? Um, early 2000, or was it? Did he? Oh no, did he? Bit, did he do a bit? It's been 14, maybe. Was it 14. It was early 2014. What it was like when Mick Wayman was in the team and stuff. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, we started off pretty poorly. I remember we made really high-profile signings. You're talking Jamie Langley, Justin Poor, Ben Kane came back. We still had the likes of you, Craig Hall, Salts, Dave Hodge. What was the initial thought in camp when Sandercock was sacked? Was it quite a bit of an awkward call? Because I imagine some people were quite happy, some people were quite disappointed. But with the news that we didn't really know was going to be taking over at the time, how was that for you, being in a camp when you the coach kind of you know gets exiled and kind of get, gets shown the boot? Um, well, it, it, just, it came completely out of left field. Um, I remember... There was a few of us we'd gone fishing um on the evening it was like middle of summer so it was like me liam salter matty Barrel, and a few others had gone fishing and then just just checking twitter and was like looked at each other it's like shit sandy's been sacked it's like what really <laughs> and we're all like talking to each other and that's how we found out we found out through twitter because it got leaked and then we had a meeting the following day um but yeah it, it was just like a, a complete surprise and um 
I I rang him afterwards. I like let the dust settle, and a few days later, I rang him and just said like I just appreciate everything that you've done for me because um, at that point it started to pay off, and I was playing regularly and I was, I was playing fairly well. Um, so it was at that point I, I realised what he'd done and what I'd, I'd learned to appreciate it then. Um, so yeah, I rang him and spoke to him then and said thank you. But yeah, it was a massive surprise. Um, people assume that us on the inside know everything before everybody else, but we find out just like everyone else does when it's on social media. And um, then there's like a crisis meeting the next day to say, oh yeah, by the way, lads, the coach is gone. Um, so yeah, massive shock. Um, but yeah, when, when Chesley took over, it was a, a complete different like method of coaching. He was much more laid back and kind of let us do things that we wanted to do and play with a bit more flair and stuff. And I think we got off to a good start when he took over. I think, did we beat Saints at home? Saints, yeah. Amadam as well, yeah. wasn't it? Amadam. Yeah. Um, so, yeah it, was, yeah, it was crazy, crazy time. Yeah, that situation's really reminded me of the city of all we found out on Twitter, mate. And there was um, obviously a little bit of a different scenario, but it's not the best, is it, finding out on Twitter? Such a big, you know, sort to do with your job. That's what people forget, though. It is a job at the end of the day. So we speak about Chris Chester, that 2014, the middle and the back end of it. Is that when you really thought, do you know what, this is probably... I'm going to do this at the moment in time, in 2014. I'm going to do this for a long, long time now. You probably played your best rugby, got Young Player of the Year. We didn't make the playoffs, but I think when Sandy got sacked, was 11th and we ended up carving a lot of good victories. You mentioned the victory over Saints there. I think we finished 9th that season. But again, mm. even though we wasn't progressing as we wanted to on the pitch, on a personal note, you was probably playing your best rugby and you found yourself as a regular. Was that probably one of the happiest and best seasons you had with Chesie in that 2014 season? Yeah, I'd say 2014 going into 2015. Um, 2015, personally, I think, was the was the best year I've, I've ever had playing rugby yeah. at whatever level. Um, but I think that came out of necessity. Um, we had a massive injury crisis um, to the point where I think we had two named front rowers fit, me being one of them. Um, I think Tony Pulatua was the other one that we'd learned. Yeah, came along, yeah. um, and I'd gone from being a, a bit player, doing 10, 15 minutes either, either side of half time, to then playing 60, 70 minutes a week because we'd literally got nobody else. Um, so um, basically, Chesley just it didn't even say anything, just threw me in, right? You're starting now. We need We need something from you. That was literally all he said. And it was like, now is your time to shine, time to grow up, time to become a man and, and, and lead the team. And I think I did that for about eight or ten weeks um, and started playing really well. Um, I think more game time helped and almost him giving me a bit more responsibility and something to live up to really took the, brought the best out in me. I think 2015 and 2016, when you associate them years with all Kingston Rovers, such a season, two seasons of peaks and troughs. It's quite a lengthy discussion, them two years, mate, especially with you when there's loads and loads of talking points. In the beginning of 2015, obviously, we spoke to the likes of Josh Mantelato, former teammates of yours, with the signings of Kenny Seo, Campisi, Albert Kelly, Josh. I really thought that season, especially in the early stages, you guys were on fire. I remember the derby on Easter Thursday, absolutely dominated Hull away. Was that 
them combinations with Ken Seo, Ben Kane, Albert Kelly. We saw John Badesbasan. There was some real, some real flair about that Rovers team. And we'd go one week going beating Wigan at home, and then the next week getting hammered against Huddersfield. I always thought that team, if it had a spark, it could have been quite special. What was your thoughts at the beginning of 2015? Did you realise I'm playing with a, probably a bit of a higher calibre player because Seo and Kelly, especially in that first year, everything touched just turned into tries or assists. Yeah, I think I think 2015 was was a really interesting year for for a few reasons. So uh, we've made loads of different signings, and we even used to say it in the camp. We were, we were a bunch of misfits and a bunch of people that nobody else wanted. Um, we had people on loan who for the season to start off the year who, who couldn't get a game at their respective clubs. Um, I think Albert Kelly, he'd admit it, it, it ran out of chances in the NRL, so he'd come over here. Um, Campo had come off the back of two ACL reconstructions. Josh Mantellato had had a good World Cup, um, but I think he'd been playing for a feeder team over in Australia. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the people that we'd signed, I think we've got Tyrone McCarthy as well. He'd been playing yeah. a bit of feeder team over there. And John Bedebza, nobody had heard of him before, and he like exploded on the scene when he came. So we were a bunch of people that nobody knew or nobody wanted, and I think we kind of wore that as a badge of honour. Um but then that pre-season we had was the hardest pre-season I've ever had by an, by a long shot. Um, it, it was it was beyond brutal, which probably led to some of the injuries later on in the year. But mentally, we were in such a good place after that pre-season, knowing that nothing can be as bad as what we've just been through. Um, and almost having that band of brothers mentality of nobody else wants us, but the but okay, I do, and we're all in this together. So it was. It was, it was a good year and we got off to a good start. I think Albie got us out of a bit, a bit of shit here and there with his interceptions and just moments of magic. So we just rolled with it. Chris, I well, don't know I about you. Agree, like, go on, Chris, you go, mate. Speak about the semi. I was, I was just going to say... <laughs> we believe players coming from the NRL and you talked about the team of misfits. Like, you know... Some, some of these players you're watching on Sky, aren't you? And, you, and, you, and you're thinking, you know, they're coming over to here to East Hull to play rugby league and stuff. I wonder what it was like for you because you, you've forged your career playing amateur rugby league in Hull and then you've played for Rovers and then all of a sudden you've got, you know, Terry, Terry Campese, Albert Kelly, you know, some of the other boys coming over. What was it like for you being a Hull lad with some of these players coming across? Um, so I, I, I was quite oblivious to rugby, really. I, I, I still am. I don't, I don't watch it at home. I uh, don't really follow it too much. So I knew of some of the players that we'd signed because they'd played Origin, like Mick Wayman, Justin Paul, Nev Costigan. So to be packing down with them was was ace. And as a young kid, knowing they're right behind you, if anything kicked off or anybody cheap shots you, you know you've, you're in good company. So, um, so yeah, signings like that was was amazing in 2014. Um, we lost a couple. I think we lost all three of them um, for 15. But yeah, the, the new players were brought in. Um, everybody added something. Everybody bought into. Everybody bought into it. Off the field, everybody was was doing stuff together. Um, it was just a real, real close bunch of people. I think that team is obviously always going to be remembered as the team that got all out to the first Challenge Cup final since 1986. Before we speak about the final, mate, and we're going to discuss selection and all things like that, the result, we, didn't, we all know what happened that day. But that semi-final at Headingley, 
I've, I know I've read a few, obviously, when we get guests on, I read a bit, and I'll read him when you spoke to the Daily Mail a few years back when you was going into your future ventures, which we'll discuss later in the show. But you said that semi was obviously the final for you. I don't know. I mean, this season's, the atmosphere has been electric at Craven Park, but that south stand at Headingley that day after the Warrington victory throughout the game, 80 minutes, I don't think I've ever seen an atmosphere like it, mate, even though there was only about five or six thousand Rovers fans around in that area. It sounded like Nancy at Wembley. I don't know about you, but must have been electric on the pitch. And how proud was you with this group of misfits, as you called it, but getting your hometown club. I know growing up as an FC fan, kind of, but even so, the club you've been with for so long to a Wembley final. Oh, yeah, it was massive and it's still the highlight of my playing career now. Um, never got close to anything like that since. Um, it, it was almost like a fairy tale. Like Whenever I go into Leeds now, I can still remember the build-up for everything. So we stayed at the Hilton in the city centre the night before, so everyone got like good preparation. And whenever you go get a train into Leeds, you have to go past the Hilton. So every, every time I'm there, I'm seeing it and, and rem like remembering it. Um, but, yeah, it was just... I'm sure there was more than 5,000 there because I think Warrington already had one eye on the final. So I don't think half of their supporters even bothered buying a ticket for the semi. They were waiting for the final. So we packed the place out. Um, but yeah, I, like, I can just remember like every little detail about it, like who was in the changing room afterwards, like what Hudgel said and and stuff like that. And I just remember like none of us wanted to leave the field after it had finished. Like it was like the slowest walk you'd ever seen. And I think we wanted to go around again just to make sure we could do it again. Um, but just everything afterwards as well, like you couldn't go like shopping without people like speaking to you or saying something or just seeing the buzz of everyone on social media, like preparing for the final and stuff. Like it was just insane. And it's like still my best memory to date. I wonder, Greeny, like when you go when you're in that game and, and and you hear all the noise and the crowd and you know you're so close, like do you think about how what you're doing as a player? Or is it just like do you go into like um like muscle the way you just do it? You don't even think about what you're doing because you've got everything going on behind you, yeah, you can't hear anybody shouting, you know. Talk us through that then them especially them final moments in the game because the crowd was so loud and obviously Sean Lund 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 goes over and and it must be hard for you to think about actually what you're doing. Yeah, well, I remember. So I'd I'd done either side of half time like usual. So I was, Chesley was going to put me back on for the last five or ten minutes. So I'd, like, I'd got my bib off and everything. I've got my card in my hand. I'm ready to go on. And then Lundy scores. So where I think I launched my card, everyone's like jumping up and down. And um, so like, Clock's going down as everyone's still celebrating. I'm looking at Chesley like, am I going back on then or what? Like, I want to I want to get a few more minutes out of this. Um, and eventually, I just ended up spending the rest of the game on the, on the sideline watching it unfold. Like, they went for a short kickoff and um, we caught that. And that was the point when we knew, like, I, I think I threw myself into Tony Puller to his arms and all sorts. So it was, um, you block all that out. It's just... It makes me laugh now when you when you go watch a game and there's like one individual shouting an instruction from like row Z or whatever. And it's like, I can't hear who's on the actual sideline, let alone what you're shouting. Um, but yeah, it's just, it wasn't even muscle memory. It's just like, just the, the whole flow of the game was we were never going to lose and good thing after good thing kept happening. And you just knew with about 20 minutes to go that, that we'd won by that point and it was just keeping on top of it. I don't, I don't yeah. know about you, Joe, but I think the worst thing that the uh, 
well, from a Warrington point of view, was giving us the, the south stand. Because mm. we, it was like the east stand at Rovers, wasn't it? We had that full stand just shouting out to the to, to, to the boys where I think if it was the other way around, it might have been something completely different. Yeah, I'm just reading yeah. a few of the comments. Sorry, Green. It's Stuart Wilson said an incredible game to remember. Grown men crying on the final whistle. And I remember, because there was a bit of a, a few messing about the last few players. One the week tried to chip it over the top. Albert, Albert um, Kelly caught it. And then everyone, you know, people running on the pitch. Was that the first time you you did erasure, James, being sang by Rovers fans? Because it was, um, it's obviously, it was done by a few fans a few years before. But after Red Red Robin, when a little respect came on at Headingley, it sounded like Eurasia was playing, never mind a few Rovers fans singing it. That was probably the highlight of my day. It was absolutely electric. Yeah, I, I still to this day don't know why they played that song out of any other song. Um, none of us lads got it either, but again... I'm sorry to interrupt, mate. I think what they were like... Pete Walker, um, A.D. Brown, Phil Barrett, who I used to do commentary with. I'm sure the year before, because I was a bit too young then, I wasn't starting going to away games with them because it was when I just joined. Would um, your mum not let you go, Joe? Is that what Yeah, my mum didn't give me enough pocket money at the time. <laughs> I think the, I think it was when you played Castleford away, there was in Pontefract and they put it on the jukebox and sang it, but then they don't know how it got around that that's that and that's how it played at Edinley. So it's right. a real weird one. I don't know if it was just a turn of fate, but it actually worked out quite well. But it was um I remember the recording for the song. Also yeah. it kind of um and then obviously Andy Bell came to us but it, it got a, it got Eurasia and folklore in Hull and they're actually playing at bonus art the next year. Yeah, that's it. So I remember at the time we were like, why are they playing this song of all songs they could play when we've won like like why this one? But yeah, it's just it's stuck now, isn't it? And I've been to a couple of Rovers games this year. It still gets played at every game, and it, it just stays in everyone's mind, doesn't it? Back to that day, and um, yeah, I mean, my wife's a big Erasure fan, so she was like gutted when I got to meet him at the first home game, and she wasn't there. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that's my claim to fame now. That I think we made top forty with that with that hit single. So whenever I meet people for the first time, I tell them I've got a top forty hit single. So the highlight of your career. I was going to say though, Greeny. Who, who, was the, who was the best singer in the Rovers camp at the time? Because you, yeah, you all, that, you, that's for sure. I couldn't change his voice. As I say, you all you, you all looked pretty shit at the time when you were singing. Yeah, I think it was heavily auto tuned. That uh, <laughs> I think the one that actually got released probably probably not even us. They probably probably dubbed it with somebody else. Uh, yeah, I remember the studio on Umber Street. But yeah, really good times. <laughs> with good times. We also have a bit of bad times, mate, and we'll move on to that. It was always inevitable. We're going to speak about it. A month yeah. later, we headed down to the National Stadium. The week leading up to the game, we've spoke to Josh Mantelao. He said the prep was crap. He said the mm. preparation was rubbish. He said we kind of hit a mental and physical wall. He said the plate where he was training was rubbish. The travel down wasn't the best. It kind of like the atmosphere got soaked away on that Monday. From your perspective, obviously, it's a big one. When did you find out you wasn't making the squad? What was your initial reaction? I know what Ben Keynes was, so we went away from you. And what was your general preparation for Wembley as possibly starting, possibly on the bench? But ultimately, a lot of fans and, you know, myself agree, not just saying it because you're on the show, mate. We've had a few comments already. 
that you should have been part of that day. I'm not saying it wouldn't have been 50 nil, but what was the, your thoughts leading up to that game and especially stood on the sideline when Leeds just absolutely hit another level, didn't they? I've never seen a demolition like it and it was so sad after everything yeah. that had happened that you were whole lad wasn't making his game at Wembley and the fact that was kind of being embarrassed on live TV. I think I think I think the result in the final makes it easier not being part of it. Yeah, um, I, bet, I bet. And that's think, that might sound bad, but I people have got to understand. Yeah, I think if I'd been left left out of the squad and we'd gone on to win it, I'd probably never have got over it. Or if it was close and we'd we'd really done ourselves proud and I, I could have maybe had an impact on it, I'd have been absolutely gutted. But I think the result it really does help as bad as that sounds. I mean, it's not what people want to hear, but I can now turn around and say, I wasn't part of the team that got beat 50-0 at Wembley. Um, I was part of the team that got to Wembley. I played the semi, played my part, but that's pretty much where it ends for me and probably where the best bit ends for everybody else. Yeah. Um, but to be fair, to, to give Chesney his, his credit, he, he told me really early in the week that I won't play in so I could get my head around it. He told me on the Tuesday, um, I, I, you know when you've got like a bit of a feeling in your stomach where like we started to get some players back from injury um, and he'd not spoken to me too much the week before I played well against Witness away the week before and do you know when you've got that nagging feeling like I'm, he's going to tell me something here I'm, I'm, I'm not I'm not going to be picked um, but he told me first to face sat me down I think we're, we're sat in the dugout outside told me on the Tuesday before the video session um, and he just said, I'm going with a a, a better de a defensive middle than than yourself. There's some better players there that defend better than you. Yes, you carry better, but I think it's going to come, to, come down to defence. So that's what I'm going with. So I was like, right, yeah, fair enough. Um, probably took it a lot better than Benny did, but at the time, Benny was 32. So he was thinking his chances of, of making another final probably aren't going to come round again. Um but yeah, I, I took it fairly well. Um, at the end of the day, what what could I do? I, I couldn't plead my case to him. I couldn't fight him. I couldn't couldn't do anything like that. So um, my preparation was probably worse than everybody else's. It was almost like fuck it, I'm not playing. What what does it matter? Um, I think they made a bit of a mistake because they roomed me and Benny together. So that the two lads that weren't playing were put in a room together, and it was probably the most negative room you've ever been in. So. Um, that probably won't the best, but they're probably thinking put them two together so they don't don't bother anybody else. But I think that the general feeling around the place was this is a massive event. Oh my god, we've made the final, and people got caught up in the history. We've not got there for thirty years and and stuff like that. And I think that got the better of everybody. Um, everybody was too worried about the hotel we were staying in or how many tickets we were getting and stuff like that, rather than don't worry about that just focus on the game. So everybody's got two caught up in it. And I, I wonder, Greeny, though, but for you, like, because was you named 18th man? So so potentially you could have been playing. Yeah, yeah. How, how, would you deal with that? how do you deal with that, knowing that you've sort of got a prep to be match ready, but also in the back of your mind, you're thinking, I, I've got no chance to, you know, like you, you're in almost two different different worlds, aren't you? Yeah, 18th man's horrible. It, it's so hard. Like, you, if you're not playing, you're not playing. You just turn up, you watch the game, support the lads, and then that's it, done. You don't have to worry about anything. 18th man, there's, 
a one percent chance you're going to play, but there's still that one percent chance. So, I mean, physically it was fairly easy for the for the couple of days running up to the game. Everything's given to you, like you eat at training because we went down a few days early. All your meals are there. You your schedule set out. You'd have to think about anything, but mentally I was nowhere near. So even if I did get picked, who knows what performance I'd have turned out. What was the initial aftermath after that game? Because there's the famous videos of you all on the pitch for quite a long period of time after the game. Um, what was the changing rooms like? Because ultimately, even though we just lost our first major final in 30 years, 50 nil, embar- you know, embarrassed, bit of a laughing stock. We only have to face up and say what it was on the day. We also had, was it six more games in the middle eights? And yeah, did- but Joe, I just want to say, I know you said embarrassed, but. Do you know what? It's one of the proudest moments, isn't it, to be at, at Wembley? Oh, mate. And I think this is the thing as Rovers fans. Sometimes we dismiss the fact that we got to Wembley. You know, we, oh, we yeah. were there. Yeah. It's just, I think it's just a, such a shame that it was such a massive scoreline, wasn't it? It was just, that was, I, I don't think it was losing at Wembley. I still think though Jamie Peacock's try after about three minutes want a try and that changed the course of the game. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it'd have been 46 nil if they want to score that. Every yeah, time. it's it's I, I still remember running out for warm-up. That was like my only involvement, really. Still remember that. Um I mean, when I left Rovers, I sold all my training kit for charity, and I was I was in two minds like, do I keep this training top? That the warm-up top and I was like no it's got no real significance for me um I've got the photos I've got the memories that I'll never leave um that's pretty much where it ends for me um I mean finished the year off really well we, we won every game in the middle eights um but I think a lot of people have got this perception that oh because he left the year after or um I didn't play so well in 2016 that that was my downfall um I got over it fairly quick um if anything i'm kind of grateful for that experience because it, it's, it's made who i am now and it's led to the life that i live now and I'm, I'm very happy now um for me i was never just a rugby player um i don't hang my hat on just what i did as a rugby player um since finding another another hat to wear i'm much happier but rugby was just part of my life i don't really talk about it much now it, that's like who i used to be um I just prefer to focus on all the positive things that I got out of rugby and the platform it's given me and the people that I've met. Yeah, definitely, mate. And I think you've made a real good point about the season after. We don't want to dwell too much on 2016 because we want to speak about your life after Rovers and say what you're doing now and the benefits of getting an education and doing business and all stuff like that. But that 2016 season, like you said, it was losing Chesey, sacking Chesey after three, two or three games, losing to Oldham in the Challenge Cup. Obviously, the million-pound game. I know you was injured. I know you didn't feature in that game. And you, you kind of... was. Did you miss, like, the last six, seven games, didn't you, with the season? Yeah, so that, that full season was an absolute car crash for me. Um, so 2015 played really well. Um, I think most people know I'd got offers to go play in the NRL off the back of that year. Um literally came within days of leaving I'd, I'd agreed terms with a club um over there i'd flight what, sorted what, what club what club was it greeny eh? so I'd, I'd i'd agreed to sign for newcastle on wow. a two-year contract um 
off the back of that really good year. Um, so we were going backwards and forwards with the club because I still had a year to run left on my contract. Um, Rovers wanted some money for me. Um, so Newcastle did a bit of digging and they were like, well, what's the going rate to get someone out of the contract? And what most people were saying is you you buy out their contracts, whatever their salary is, you pay them that. So yeah. in the NRL, whatever you pay to buy somebody out, that comes off your salary cap. So they'd offered an amount of money for me to release me. And they said, you, you can't know, really what, that. you know what they offered? I do, bought your 800 grand a year salary. That's why. It, well, that's it, yeah. So I'm not telling you, so you work out what my salary is. million pound transfer. Yeah. <laughs> I wish. Um, do, do you do you regret that, mate? Honestly, do you do you like when you look back at it now? I know you're so happy doing what you're doing, but do you yeah. just when you had to give it a try? Um, I think the mind frame, mind frame that I'm in now, I'm glad I didn't go. Um, yeah. because 2016, I really fell out of love with rugby, and my love of rugby probably hasn't been the same since. Um, hence why I've dropped the championship and, and stuff like that. But um, I think I'd have stretched myself too far got myself in really deep to then fall out of love of rugby at the highest I could ever be. And I think it, 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 I'd have hated it, to be honest, and being so far away from home as well. Um, so, yeah, I didn't end up going, came within two days of pre-season. I'm like, what am I doing? Am I going? Are you keeping me? What's going on? Um, and that's when JP came in and he was like, under no circumstances are you leaving? And I was like, right, well, at least I know now. So in my mind, everything I did in 2016 was to recreate 2015 and get an offer when I am allowed to go at the end of that year when my contract's up. So I used to get myself that worked up before games. It's like, right, I need to have the best game ever. I'd go out, I'd go do something stupid. Like I'd end up scrapping, I'd get sent off, I'd get knocked out. Then I got injured and it was just like, it just snowballed and snowballed and got even worse. And then I'd left it that late because I was like, no, an offer from Australia is coming. I'm holding on, I'm holding on. And then I had decent offers from Super League teams throughout the year. And I was like, no, I'm good. I'm waiting for Australia. And then it got to a point where my season had been that shit. I'd played that fewer games and I'd been injured that I was down to uh, two offers. One was to stay at Rovers for less money than what I was on. Or the other one was to go to Lee for the same money that I was on. I was like, right, well, I'll go to Lee then. I've, I've left myself no option. So most people think because of Derek Beaumont, he was like splashing money about, and that's the reason I went. I ultimately left myself with no other options. It's really interesting, though, because before we talk about where you went after leaving Rovers, you mentioned about getting sent off. And the one question we keep getting asked, and probably the one question you keep getting asked is... What did Travis Byrne say to you to make you go for him and get, obviously, what happened? He didn't actually say anything to me. So when he when he was at Rovers, he was really hard on us young lads because um, yeah. he knew none of us would say anything back. Um, he wasn't hard on us to get the best out of us. It was just it was just a bully. Um, was he just a prick. So, you are. Was he just a prick? Yeah, it was it was a prick. It was a bully. Uh, James, I work with a prick, and I know you fail. So, I think if you watch 2015, I think I shoulder charged him off the ball, broke his cheekbone. So that's pretty much where it started. Um, and then the following year, I think he was playing hooker because James Roby was injured. So I was like, right, I'm just going to keep running at him, kept running at him, kept running at him, elbowing him in his chest, in his head, all sorts, and then. 
I think when you watch the video back, I play the ball and he slaps me. Yeah. I, like, I look at the referee. Cheap, like, cheap you shot, it? it was a cheap shot. Well, that's, yeah, he just slapped me. It was just disrespectful. Yeah. So I was just like, are you joking? Like, looked at the referee, like, are you going to do something? Referee was like, play on. He slapped me again. And that's why I, I, I threw a punch. But that is the first fight I've ever had in my life at 25, 26. I was like, I'd throw in a punch. I was like, shit, I better throw another one in case he throws one. And then that's it. We were off. It, it, I think, you know what? I remember I, I, I remember it. And I, I think, as a support, I was thinking, if he hadn't got sent off, we might have won this game. But mm. I don't think any support begrudged you the fact you did what you did. Yeah, so for, for me, it was like a whirlwind two minutes. Cause I think, yeah, exactly. Right. But as, as fans, Greeny, we was like, actually, we agree. <laughs> we're like, we were stood with you going, yeah, we he, he deserves it. Because as good as Travis Baird was at Rovers, it was also a bell end. So yeah. Like you, you're sort of counterbalancing it all the time. But I, I think, obviously, I mean, it's a long time going now, mate, but I think you shouldn't feel any guilt or anything like that about what you did because we was, as supporters, we were sort of like, yeah. well, he deserves it. I think it was a bit of a, like a, not a turning point, but it was quite a big moment for me to stand up for myself and, and actually have a fight. Because like I say, it took me to the age of 25 to have my first fight, so... Um, yeah, never actually said anything. Just slapped me a couple of times, and I just thought, how disrespectful can you be? But yeah. it was like a whirlwind two minutes. I think I'd scored, and then it was the very next kickoff. They'd kick yeah. to me, and then then we were fighting. So in two minutes, I'd scored, which is rare for me. And then <laughs> I'd a punch up, and then I'm on the sidelines. So. <laughs> what about um, obviously former teammate, and unfortunately the late Jordan Cox. A famous moment again in 2016 when you two came to um, fisticuffs and ultimately you got the better of him and sent him on his backside. Yeah, it paints me out to be a bad teammate, doesn't it? The two fights I've had are like ex-teammates. It's like, it's like I don't get on with anybody. Um, no, again, like no words were were uh, were exchanged. I think it was more out of embarrassment, to be honest, because to be fair to him, I'd, I'd run at him and it, it put me on my back. So I was a bit embarrassed by that. And then... As I was getting up to play the ball, he was like stood over me with a clenched fist, and I think it was a bit of bit of fight or flight. Next thing I know, I've punched him, and I'm like, "Oh shit, I've hit, I've hit him! I best throw another one because I can see he's about to throw one." And then as I throw a second one, that's the one that drops him, and it was like all over after that. But you know, like before you've even had a chance to think, you're like, "Oh fucking, hell, what have I done? Like this is like twice in a month, and I'm going to be back up at RFL with another fine, another suspension. Like I can't talk my way out of this one." Um, and yeah. That was. It's real funny, Greeny, because I remember at the start of the our conversation, like you you said, you had to sort of get yourself up for games, like you had to bring the aggression. So I wonder, like as you became a pro, how would you get yourself in the mindset of of coming up against you know someone who might be five stone heavier than you? How would you how would you get yourself up for the game? Um, I think it came with confidence, really. Like twenty fourteen, it was. Um, it was just, just trying to show people what I can do. And I, I, because of how big I was and the things I'd learned, I, I was starting to get the better of people when I was carrying the ball. So I started to to have that confidence. And then 2015, taking on a bit more of a bigger role within the team and stuff, you kind of kind of back yourself a little bit more. Um, but yeah, I think when you speak to like Justin Paul was great for me. Like they don't come much more aggressive than him. Um, and... He basically said it boils down to a simple rule. It, it's them or you. Somebody's got to win. And at the end of the day, if they win, 
then you're going to be out of a job and you're going to be out of money or whatever, or they're going to embarrass you. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's him versus me. Um, and I think I took it to the extreme in 16 by how many times I got suspended and injured and stuff. And again, you need to, you need to have the control of aggression. Otherwise stuff like that happens. Yeah. And for you guys listening, obviously we can see your questions. We are going to answer and um, give them to James and stuff and get an answer at the end of the podcast. But first, mate, like I said, you eventually, you did leave Old Kingston Rovers after 2016, after making 82 appearances. Then you moved to newly promoted Lee Centurions, a team that had took over from Old Kingston Rovers in Super League. Tell us about your, before we speak about Bradford and York in the Championship, how was it firstly at Lee? Because when you came up, it was kind of like the first time a club had been promoted in a very long time due to the licensing and then the million-pound game hadn't worked out in 2015 for Bradford against Wakey. When Rovers got relegated, it was kind of like, is this a new generation for rugby league? You was playing with Rovers players now like Ben Crooks. Um, it was Fooey Fooey there when you was there. And how was the situation at the Lee Sports Village? Because even though you eventually that season did get relegated, I remember you beat Wigan at home, you run Saints close a few times. How did you find your first season away from Old Kingston Rovers? Was it totally different or was it kind of just like, right, we've moved on, we go again? It, it was an absolute circus, in, in yeah. all honesty. Um I'd, I'd gone to a team that had, for the last few years, had coasted in the championship. They'd got into bad habits where they could turn up in third gear, blow a team away. Um, when they made the middle eights, they'd really turned it on. They had like a real attitude about them, like, this is what we're doing. We are getting promoted. Um, but I think the team that got promoted, there were a lot of people there that probably didn't take it very seriously. Um, they'd had be out on the piss most nights of the week or it was just it was just carnage like i can't put my finger on it it was just insane was you traveling over greeny from all was you what was your training like was you did you move over to there or did you stay in hull and then travel over for training and match days no so me me and my wife moved um so the move worked out really well for her she got a really good job in manchester which she yeah. didn't want to leave um but yeah, for me, it was it was the worst decision I ever made. Like I'm not just saying this now because I'm I'm talking to you two, but one of the biggest regrets I do have in sport is leaving Rovers. Um, I mean, when we got relegated, I probably wasn't left with much choice. It'd have been a massive pay cut or um, find another club. So that was kind of taken out of my hands. Yeah, but... I think to be to be fair though, Green, I mean Josh Mansell, so he said the same, didn't he, Joe? He's, he, he wanted to stay. He wanted to stay, but he just financially, you're not millionaires, are you? You're not on he just, no. yeah, fifty just grand a week. He couldn't, he couldn't justify it, and I probably, no. I'm guessing that's the same for you as well. Yeah, I think. Well, the biggest thing for me was that I really didn't get along with JP. So he he was the main reason behind me leaving in sixteen. I think if it wasn't for him, I probably would have stayed. Um, really? yeah. So what what did you get on with him about? What like was it the well, five-year plan? It was always it was always hard for me being a front uh, an English front rower because right. he compares your game to his. So right. if I'd not had thirty carries and forty tackles, then I'd, I'd had a shit game. And let's be honest, who on earth can do Jamie Peacock's work rate? Nobody. Um, so we, we we didn't really see eye to eye, um, and just with everything else that was going on on the in the year, it was just a stressful place to be. Um, and I think having the year that I'd had the year before, I was that desperate to get back there, and I'd had this offer of Australia that's now been taken away from me. I think mentally, and I, I was just in a in a bad place. So the, the offer for me to join another team and almost start afresh, I, I jumped at it. Um, 
unfortunately I'd, I'd chosen Lee, which wasn't the best idea. Um, when I got there, training was really easy. It was nice and slack. There was no real attention to detail. There was no real discipline. It was almost like the inmates ran the asylum. And at first I was like, how good's this? And then when we started to lose week upon week, it's like, ah, that's why. Um, and it was almost like history repeating itself. Yeah. But obviously you recovered from there. And, and at the end of the day, you got a, a transfer to Cass. And and how did that come about? Because you've got the, what, the, the one, the, uh, was it the league? No, it got beat in the grand final the year before. It was Danny Maggs' last game before he came to us. Yeah. Yeah, so I'd... I was I was sat in my apartment in Manchester thinking like shit. What am I going to do? It's it's early November. Everyone's going back to pre-season, and I'm sat here with no job. I'd been Lee had paid me out the last two months of that wage, so they could get me off the wage bill. So I've got a little bit of money in the bank, but apart from that, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and then my agent rang and said, "Oh, there's an opportunity at Cast for you. Um, the money's crap, but it, it's an opportunity." Um, and I think by this point, I was just like, I'm going to give rugby one more go. I hate, I've hated the last two years. It's been two different environments, and I've hated them both equally. I'll try one more time. So I went to Cass. had a really good pre-season there. Um, I think I started the first game of the year. Um, I, I got off to a really good start, but then uh, almost fell out of favour a little bit. Ended up on dual reg again. Um, and it was from there that I went to the Championship and... I think that found championship was probably the one for me because it was part-time, it wasn't as intense and you lose on a Sunday, yeah, fair enough, you're upset. But everyone goes back to work on a Monday, life goes on and that was a bit more bit more for me, that. I think with the teams you've played for as well, especially Rovers and Cass, I know Rovers probably a lot more, but the fans are so passionate. And like you mentioned, when you did make that drop to the Championship, which we'll speak about now, it, you kind of, yeah, you, you lose some games, but they do get over it eventually, don't they? And you ended up, after leaving Cash, you went to Bradford, a really famous club, you know, one of the most successful clubs in British Rugby League history, just not clicking, obviously had financial troubles. Who was the coach at the time? Was it John Keir? How did that all come about, mate? And when was that the reason... And the moment you realised I need to do something else apart from rugby league, yeah. So uh, John Key was the coach there, so I played for him previously at Batley um, on like, one of my first dual reg spells, um, and that was when they were coming back from League One. So they would, they'd spent yeah. quite a bit of money for League One. Um, I don't think they'd lost a game by that point. Um, so they were like, we need a final push. We, we could do with a couple of middles and. It seen that I'd been on dual reg to Halifax and weren't really getting a look in. So it rang John Wells at Cass at the time and they loaned me out for the rest of the year. Um, and I absolutely loved it. I love loved John Keir. Um, he's, a, he's a great great person, great motivator, and I've got a lot of time for him. So that, that move probably came at a good time for me because I started to enjoy myself again. Um, probably as well because we were in League One with such a good team. We were blowing teams away by 40 points without really breaking sweat. So it was just good fun. Um, so me looking at life after rugby kind of happened after after I left Lee. Um, when you get your contract torn up two years running, um, you need you start planning and to look after yourself. And I think after that relegation at Lee, I, I made the decision that I'm not going to rely on anybody else ever again. Um, as good as team sports are and employed work is, um, it, it's not worth much if something like this happens. So uh, at that point, I'm, I'm taking my own life in my own hands and I'll, I'll 
carve away for myself. What support did you get from the RFL or Rugby League Cares to, to do that, Greeny? So Rugby League Cares, they've they've got um they they offer like funding for your courses. So right. I've done like three courses in the last few years <clears throat> and they've they've paid for half of it. So depending on what your salary is at the time determines how much funding you get. But um yeah, I've spent thousands on courses and, and they've paid for half of it, um, which is really good of them. Um, they can help you with finding the courses, but I already knew what I wanted to do, so I just paid for it myself and went back with the receipts and, and they paid for it. I think that's really good, Chris, as well, isn't it? Because yeah. there is so much more after Rugby League. Like we always say, James, the Rugby League players, you're not on millions of pounds a year and people are shocked when you tell them how much you was on at a young age compared to people what are maybe at Old City and picking up a thousand a week. I know it's not mega, mega money, but compared to what the scholars are at Rugby, it's just a totally different world. And I think what you and Beth, your wife, what, when she was doing a cheesecake business, that was really popular within the world of Rugby League. And I know especially with the people in Hull and the surrounding areas, but tell us a bit about what you two are doing now, obviously your mortgage advice. How did that come about and how vital is it for the guys listening and for the people who will listen after this live stream to get education, get started on a business? Because rugby league, it can end like that. And oh, yeah. you're not I mean, millionaires, are you? Go on, tell us. And the beauty of live stream is, guys, my laptop's on 10%, so I am listening. I'm just going to grab my charger. You go, mate. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah when, when you think about it, your salary cap's 2.2 million. And that's to pay 30 people so that puts into context what you actually get paid um but for me studying and, and preparing for life after rugby was a bit of a savior really um i said it earlier about if you're just a rugby player whilst rugby's going well it's fantastic everybody knows who you are everyone's telling you how good you are and you're on cloud nine but if all you are is a rugby player and all of a sudden that starts to take a turn you're not enjoying it as much you almost lose your identity and it's almost like your world's ended um, so for me to study and become somebody else, to become uh, another profession, to have something else to talk to about, because at the height of, like well, I said, the height of my career, not that like it was very high, but um, people used to talk to me about rugby and rugby only. And if rugby was going shit, you didn't want to talk about it. So it was almost like I was just killing all conversation with people. Then I started studying, started investing in property, and people are asking me about that now. Um, or they were asking me about that first and they weren't even talking about rugby. Um, and then when my wife got into business, um, her cakes became like really popular. I was then known as like the cheesecake husband. Like I'd lost <laughs> my identity altogether. I, thought I was famous for being married to her. But at the time, like I loved it because it took the shine off me. Rugby was going crap and people weren't asking me about it. So it was a good deflection. Um, but yeah, I mean, like since... 2016, I, I bought my first buy-to-let property in my last year at Rovers um, and it, it enjoyed enjoyed that so much. It was like, well, I want to do this for a living when I when I retire. So I studied to become an estate agent. I was going to manage other people's properties and stuff like that. Went to Lee. My player sponsor in Lee was a big estate agent in the area. So I was like, so what, just so I can pick your brains, like what, what did it take to get it off the ground? What does your day-to-day -day look like? What sort of money are you earning, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, and they told me, and I was like, I don't have that sort of money lying about to get a business off the ground. I play rugby, not football. Like that's just just not doable. Um, and the day to day sounds really boring. That's not for me. Um, bought a few more properties in that time, and then it just so happened. Like I think I was at, at Bradford at the time. Went to a wedding with my wife. We were on the young couples table and got chatting to some bloke next to me. And 
he was, he was like, oh, I'm a mortgage advisor. I was like, all right, so like, what's your day-to-day like? What sort of money do you earn? And he was telling me, I was like, that's a, a, bit, a bit more bit more for me, that. Um, so I studied all my exams in, in that off-season when I was at Bradford, um, and that was four years ago and, and been doing it ever since. But absolutely love what I do. It worked really well alongside rugby because people used to talk to me about work first, rugby was second, and I became more than just a rugby player, which made me a lot happier and Believe it or not, everyone takes the piss out of me how boring I am, but I became a bit more interesting. I want just someone to talk to about rugby. There was there was a bit more there as well. Yeah, and to be fair, James, I think it's really refreshing hearing about, you know, not the fact you're, you know, we've got you on for Rovers Heritage Cast, but the fact that you're a young man who's, who's decided to take, you know, his life and do something with it, not just be a rugby player, which in itself would be an amazing thing because I think you probably underestimate how how, uh, how high Rovers fans, you know, think of you. And, and the fact you've been able to then forge another career for yourself is really refreshing. Mm. Um, but when when you make them first forays into that, you know, it must be quite daunting because you, you're probably worrying about, am I going to have enough money to do X, Y, Z? Am I going to be able to do it? And, and was you thinking about your rugby legacy or was you just thinking about, actually, I need to forge a career for myself now? Um, I think the, the, the timing was really good for me. So when I was studying and, and getting my business off the ground, I was still picking up a full-time wage at Bradford. Not a massive one, but still a full-time wage. So that took the pressure off. Whilst I built the business, I still had something to fall back onto. Um, so that, that really helped. But I think for the last three, four years, especially since I've been running my own business, is I've got a much bigger passion for running my business than I ever did playing rugby. Um, so that was why this year I made the decision to retire because I was up at five, six o'clock in the morning working on my business, no problem, wouldn't moan about it at all. But if somebody said to me, we need you to be at training for six o'clock in the morning, you've got sprints to do and you've got weights to lift, I'd be like, no, you can sod off. Like, that's that's not what I want to do anymore. So I knew then my passion lies in running my business. That gets me out of bed in the morning. That's what I love to do. Um, but rugby's been a great platform for that. Um, most of my early clients were like diehard Rovers fans. So I'm grateful for that. Um, it's given me something to work off. And everything that I've learned through rugby, like skills-wise or um, personal development, getting loaned out to every club in the country and having to basically get chucked into a room with 30 strangers and having to talk your way out of it and stuff has has really helped me in, in the job that I do now. Yeah, it's great to hear, mate. And like Chris said, it's so refreshing. And for people listening, you know, take the advice because if you are a young player or players who listen, you know, you, you don't make that money forever even if it's you get to the decent amount of wages in super league so we definitely need more people to do education and stuff after rugby league mate because it's so vital and chris has got all the questions from the fans but i just want to ask first about your final was it two seasons one at the york city night i know covid had a massive part to play but how did you find it moving to not obviously not moving but playing in north yorkshire with a few former rovers players quite an affiliation with rovers as york there's a lot of ex-players there liam salter will oaks has gone back there matty marsh um will joe plenty of players who you will have played with greeny how have you how did you find your time at york and ultimately when did you decide you know what i'm going to call it a day i'm going to move on from rugby league 
Uh, well, having them lads there definitely made it easier. Um, I left Bradford because they were in special measures. I, I didn't want to leave. I absolutely loved my time there. Um, loved all the lads that were there. Um, it was just, if I was to pick one year that I enjoyed the most out of rugby, it was probably 2019. Like, I absolutely loved that year. Um, so reluctantly had to leave. And I was thinking like, well, I'm growing my business now. I can probably, it's probably now the time to go to part-time. And at the time, that was when York were absolutely flying. They'd finished third in 2019. All the lads I knew there loved it. And I was like, yeah, I'll, I, I want to come. What do I do? I, I think I was, I was looking after myself then. I didn't have an agent. Met up before, they had a coffee with him. And um, yeah, from, straight from the off, I was like, well, yeah, this is me then. Let's let's get something sorted. Travelled with the lads. It was great. Obviously, we lost a lot of 2020 because of, of COVID and everything. Um but yeah, again, it, it really helped me, again, transition into rugby. So I've gone from full-time rugby to building my business to then I'm now part-time. I've got more time to build my business to now I'm retired. So it was just it was like a seamless transition. It was perfect. Um, but yeah, I mean, the height of summer this year was the busiest I've ever been work-wise because of you know, stamp duty and stuff like that. And everybody wanted to move. And I was up at five, six o'clock in the morning trying to get all my work done, rushing around like an idiot at five o'clock to finish my work to then get to training. Um, and I was the last one at training. I was the first one to leave. I wasn't soaking up anything they were telling me in video because mentally I was just absolutely fried by the time I got there. Wasn't looking after myself. I was eating whatever I could get my hands on because I was that busy. Wasn't sleeping very well. Um, so I was starting to get found out a little bit on a weekend, like I wasn't playing as well as I should be or... If I did play well, it took everything I had to play well. Um, and then that rolls over into Monday, like you feel shit and now you're at work and you've got all this work to do. And so I told Fordy really early on in the season, I was like, I think I'm done. Um, I'm going to retire, but I've made a commitment to you and everybody else. I'll, I'll see the season out. Um, almost like laying my cards on the table saying like, I'm really struggling with all the workload and stuff, but I'm, I'm still here and I'm still going to perform for as long as I'm here. Um, and almost so he can kind of make plans for the following year to replace me, but then also so he's got a bit of an insight into how I'm feeling. Um, and it was really good, to be honest. After I told him, it, it was it kind of eased off me a little bit because he knew how much stress I was under and, and stuff like that and how, on, how honest I'd been. Um, but, yeah, it was sad, sad to leave and sad to finish. Um, you don't realise, like, the things that you've done and your memories and stuff until you, until you walk away. Um, part of me still thinks like, oh, do I do one more year? Or if anyone was ever to text me next year saying, oh, we need a front row at short notice, can you come play four games? I'd be like, yeah, I'll be there straight away, no worries. But um, yeah, the time's right. Yeah, and I think it's refreshing because, you know, as a supporter, um, like you said, your heart's not really in it, is it? You're not, you're not chomping at the bit to be going out onto the field, you know? And, and we've seen many you know, players who were basically eats out of living by just getting that one more game, you know, that one yeah. more season and, and, and they've not really been true to themselves. So I think that's why it's really refreshing, Joe, to hear Greeny say about how he's, he's put his hand up and said, look, it's not for me anymore. But we've got some questions here, uh, Greeny, from, from supporters and... and have we lost him uh, again? A couple of it's that 827 Wi-Fi green, it's useless. Oh, it's you seven, eh? 
Yeah. You played your bill this week. No. Do you fancy um, queuing up for Rovers reserves? Well, when's your next game? Oh, it's next year, isn't it? I'm big KD back. Oh, KD, I'm there. Say no more. KD, KD bang. We're definitely... I'll go back if you'll go back. Chris, ask your questions. Your Wi-Fi drops again. Yeah, you got me. Well, George Todd's, Todd's asked the best fans in Super League, so that's an easy question. <laughs> uh, um, but Stuart Wilson's asked, what's James's view on the young forwards that have been recruited? And does he have any advice you know, for them? Bearing in mind, we sound sort of, I say young forwards, Tom Garrett, what, 27? Uh, Greg Richards, yeah, Frankie Greg Holden, Richards. Uh, some promising, yeah. yeah, promising players coming from the championship. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've played against both of them this year. Tom Garrett is a big lump of a man. Um, he's not much shorter than me, but he's he is a thick human. He is big. Um, I think he's only ever come through amateur, so give him a pre-season with Tony Smith getting his hands on him. Um, I think he'd be quite quite a promising prospect. Um, same with, same with Greg Richards. Um, I think he's, he's a very skillful player. Um, he's always won a Super League Grand Final for one. Um, and I think the route that Tony's going down is competition for players, young, hungry players, um, is gonna, only going to feed into what he's done this year. So it should be, should be quite exciting. Yeah. Sarah Jane's asked, you might have already answered this, but if you have, what's your best memory in the red and white of all Kingston Rovers? Um, there's a couple, but I think all of them come back to 2015. Um, besides making my debut, obviously, with the little bits of it that I remember. Um, but yeah, 2015, I think that cup run we had when we beat Wigan at Lee Sports Village. Uh, remember that game? No one gives us a chance for that. Obviously, the semi. Um, but yeah, I think just, just winning some games that we were never expected to win, like winning the Saints Challenge Cup game, um, just after Sandy had gone. Um, I think we'd beat Warrington away under Sandy as well. Um, yeah, little moments like that where no one gave us a chance and we went out there and did it. Yeah, and no question from Stuart Wilson. He's asked, if you could turn back time and do it all again, would you do anything differently? Um, probably enjoy the ride a little bit more, I think. Um, I used to get so worked up about how I'd played or, or whatever and, I was so uptight about how I prepared for games and stuff. Like we'd play on a Sunday or if we played on a Friday and we got the weekend off, like the young lads would go out on a Saturday and I'd be like, no, no, we're playing again next Sunday. Like I, I'll miss this one. And missed, I missed out on a fair few nights out for stuff like that and probably didn't let my hair down or laugh and joke as much as I should have done at training because I was so uptight. So I'd probably chill out a little bit more. Try and enjoy the little things and enjoy people's company and enjoy the ride. Yeah, a question probably related to, to what you've just said from Ethan Ten, I think he's a York fan. He said, What's been your highlight in your final season at York? And do you do you think from what you've seen at York that they could be in the Super League in the future? Um so highlight for me at York. Um well, we didn't really have a 2020, so 2021. Um it was a bit bit here, there and everywhere with the injury crisis we had. But I think playing Wigan at home in the Challenge Cup, we had we had so many injuries. I think we had three young lads debut, like 16 and two of them were 17. And I think we only lost 20-0. We had a real good go and really proud of them young lads that made, made their debut. I think that was when I was telling the story about my debut, like lads that were, it's not going to be that bad. Um, <laughs> that was probably my highlight. Um, 
And I think for me as well, it was just nice to know that at 30, when I'm not, my heart's not in it as much and I'm on my way out, that if I put my mind to it, I can still hold my own against a team like that. So it was quite nice for me. Um, but yeah, I think in terms of Super League, York have got all the infrastructure there that they need. Um, great facilities, um, massive like fan base to tap into, um, strong backing. The club's, club's in a good financial position. Ford is a great coach. It's just um, trying to get all the other little bits and pieces together and having a successful and, um, what's the word? Consistent season. It's <laughs> quite a competitive league that now, isn't it, mate? Um, the Championship especially. Why don't you um, join Cornwall? I looked on their website. You can email and say if you can make it. Oh, um, you can make it in League One. Drop us an email. So I don't know about me. I'm a bit past reverse, but you'll definitely got a season. Oh, Joe, I'll, put, I'll go play. I'll go this, yeah, is the, this is the, um, the you two in front row and I'll be like Matt Parcell. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll car share if you want. I'll pick you up in an hour for training. You mean plane share, never mind car share. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but no, mate, I think my final question before we wrap up is obviously because it's a Rovers podcast, you've been watching on the telly, you've got yourself to a few games. What's been the positives of all Kingston Rovers 2021, mate? And how can we progress into 2022? Obviously, we've got 80 minutes away from Old Trafford. Still a lot of improvement from all Kingston Rovers. I think people think that the finished article, they're really not. And I think man and Chris's views when we go into the 2022 season will definitely have mixed opinions because I still think we're still really inconsistent sometimes. You look at some of the defeats that we got last year. If you'd have beat the like Wakefield twice, Uddersfield, you've ended up finished third, second or third. It's it's not that hard for Rovers, I don't think. It's just doing the little things right. I know Lachlan Coote's a massive signing, but for you, where do Rovers need to go well in 2022? Um, I think they need a couple more experienced players in and amongst it. You've got some like really exciting, young, hungry players. Michael Lewis, Rowan Mills. It'd be nice to see Elliot Minchella back next year. Um, some really good young players there. Um, I think the inconsistency some, sometimes comes from you don't have them experienced players around you to keep on top of everybody and really drive the standards in the team. So... Lock and Coot will have a big impact. Uh, maybe one or two more experienced players because um, the rest of the players they signed for next year are all fairly young. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's exciting to see. It's nice to see so many young lads make a name for themselves as well. Um, and the brand of rugby that Tony Smith's played is it's almost like there are no rules. Just go out there and enjoy yourself and, and show everyone what you can do. And it's exciting to watch. Um, I've been to a, a few games this year Um and it makes me want to go back and watch more. I was going to say, would you but, like full played under Tony Smith, this team that they're playing? Yeah, I, I mean, I've, I've never actually spoke to him, but when you see him in post-match interviews and stuff, he comes across like a really good bloke, and I could imagine it, it'd be good to play for, and he, he's honest. He, even in defeat or victory, he's very honest and very humble. Um, so I think it would be good to play for, and he's clearly getting the best out of his players, so his man management's clearly there. Um, so yeah, next year next year would be exciting if they can repeat that. Um, and the other things that the clubs have got going on in the background as well, that Humber Street, that looks, uh, Craven Street looks class. Um, that looks like a good time and everything else that they're doing there. Um, I'm hoping to sponsor next year in, in some fashion. Um, I've got a, a call with a club next week about doing that. Um, so I'll be there or thereabouts next season. Um, so hopefully get down to a few more games. Are you, did you mention, um, Chris, that your former... Owner Rob Crossland's commented in anti Chris. What's the um, comment from Rob? 
Well, it looks oh, like it's again. It looks <laughs> like he's giving me puppy dog eyes with that. Yeah. No, he, he, Rob Crossland, he's just put the Cornwall bus. So it's uh, he, 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 he Rob can fund it. If Rob can co-chair it, me, you and um, James will get into it. Oh, Rob's a silent partner. Yeah, he really is. He's a um, deadly duo, won't they? Him and Neil back in the day. And a really good chat as well, guys, with Rob Crossland while we're here. But, mate, it's yeah, been great to speak to, to you. It's been great to speak to you, Chris, hasn't it? I know we've had a few issues with all Wi-Fi, but I've really enjoyed doing this live stream. It's been, been great to speak to James, not all about rugby league, but about what he's doing off it. It's been um, good to get back on the mic because we've had a few weeks off, haven't we, mate, since the Jenna Brooks season review? Yeah, I just think it's really brave of uh, James to come on and be so honest about his rugby mm. career and, and just be so honest about his life as well. And James, why don't you just give a plug about your business, what you're doing and, and where people can get in touch with you? Yeah, so we uh, specialise in mortgages and life insurance. So anybody that wants to buy a house or invest in buy-to-let, we, we can help with that. Um, we're, we've got an office based in the Ergo building in Hesel. Um, so you can find us at greenandgreen.net. That's our website. Um, but yeah, on all the social media platforms, we're really trying to build that now. Um, but yeah, absolutely love what we do, helping people buy their dream home and, and protect their families. So um, yeah, yeah, I love it. Green and Green, the new sponsors of the Red Robin podcast. No, but thank you, mate. It's been great to speak to you. A few guys who have commented. Obviously, we've had our live stream. If you've watched it live, we really appreciate it. And for you guys who are listening on our normal platforms, thank you, as always. So this has been the Red Robin podcast with me, Jopiad, Chris Johnson, and former Robin, James Green. Thanks for your time, James. All the best for you and Beth in the future, buddy, with your business. Cheers, mate. Thanks for having us. No worries. Thanks, Chris. Take care. Cheers, boys.